VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, May the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Ben Murphy sitting in the producer's chair this morning. So you'll be speaking with Ben when you give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, one 1- 888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, as you heard Brian Bedore mention in the newscast, for those of you keeping an eye on the Canadian-based NHL teams in the playoffs, the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions, Tampa Bay Lightning, bounced back to beat the Leafs last night, 5-3, to tie the series at one apiece. The Oilers, nice comeback, really disappointing loss for the Oilers in Game 1. They popped the Kings 6-0 last night to also tie that series. Let's keep it going with some hockey, bring it back local. I want to say good morning. Congratulations on a tremendous four-year run at the University of PEI to West Coast hockey player, player Jolena Gillard. She has had an extraordinary time. In her first year at UPEI, she was Rookie of the Year. In the second, uh, second year, she made the AUS All-Star Team. In the third year, she also made the AUS All-Star Team, one of the top point-getters in the league. In her fourth year, Jolena Gillard led the AUS and all of Canada for the most goals. Top goal scorer in Canadian University female hockey. Absolutely tremendous. Played in the Nationals, scored a couple of goals in the three games, won the MVP for her team. She's the Female Athlete of the Year for UPEI. That's an honor that also includes her performance, her performance in academics as well as athletics. So she's going on to a Team Canada camp in Calgary later this summer. She's been invited to play pro in Europe as well. So she has had quite a run. And I can only know about these exploits and achievements when people fill me in. So thank you very much to the folks who told me about Jolena and her tremendous career at UPEI. We wish her good luck at the camp and good luck if she makes her way to play some pro in Europe. I mean, there you go. Way to go, Jolena Gillard. This is another female hockey story, but not as great. Ella Mead. She's from Paradise. She's a 13-year-old. She played for the Wolverines in the U13AA Don Johnson Hockey League this year. It's a competitive boys league. So she qualified. She was evaluated to be one of the top female hockey players in her age group and invited to come to the provincial camp this summer, the high-performance program. So 44 players get to move on. They pick 20 players. They go on to play the Atlantic's Thanksgiving weekend. So that's, of course, all the four Atlantic provinces. Ella has been told she cannot try out for the team. Now, apparently, and this is a completely useless rule, and I think uh, Ella and others will agree, is that if you don't sign up to play female hockey throughout the year, then you don't qualify to try out for the provincial female team. Some exemptions have been granted over the years, but Ella's was rejected. You would imagine that the coaches and the other players on the female provincial team would like to see an outstanding player like Ella. She plays in the boys' league because she says... She likes the intensity of the boys. She likes the speed of the game. She'd rather play with the boys. Now, at some point during your minor hockey career, there's decisions to be made. But, you know, when we're looking for who's going to be the next Maggie Connors and who's going to be the next Abby Newhook, for Ella, it would have been a great experience to play for the province, you know, get to play in the Atlantic Championships. And she's been rejected, which is, you know, as she says, it doesn't make sense. I think it's kind of a useless rule. She's right. The rules are in place because they want to encourage the expansion and the growth of female hockey, and that's all great. And it's something that we're all behind in full. But that doesn't mean we should alienate a player like Ella from getting to play for the provincial team. So not as great a story as the accomplishments of Jolena Gillard, but if you want to talk about it. 
We can do it. All right, 61 years ago today in 1961 that Alan Shepard became the second person and the first American to depart the Earth and enter into space, a low Earth orbit in a capsule called Freedom 7. It was all part of a mission called Mercury Redstone 3, but unlike the Russian Yuri Gagarin, who was the first man in space, Shepard actually had some control of the spacecraft, climbed to an altitude of 116.5 miles, which is a 187.4 kilometers. So he woke up that morning, and his backup astronaut that day, John Glenn. They had their breakfast. I think it was bacon and scrambled eggs. He made his way to the capsule, sat in the launch pad for a couple of hours. His spacesuit did not have an artificial bladder. Mr. Shepard did his pee, made his water, and had to take the entire flight in that status. Upon his return, national hero, ticker tape parades up and down the line. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal by President John F. Kennedy and also the Distinguished Flying Cross. That was 61 years ago today in 1961. And today in history, 1904, Cy Young, the legend, pitched the first perfect game of the modern era of baseball. He was playing for the Boston Americans. They beat the Philadelphia Athletics at the Huntington Avenue grounds today, 1904. And we're easing into it, right? There's always the want, for me anyway, to have a poke around and have a look for something to make you smile. And maybe even to shed the little tear of happiness. Because there's an awful lot of very troubling and overwhelming stories out there. And this is one such great story. I don't know if you've seen the video. Many of you probably have. It's of a Blue Jays fan who picked up a ball, a home run shot by uh, New York Yankee Aaron Judge. So, you know, lots of Blue Jays fans will be in attendance at Rogers Center for the Blue Jays games, but there's lots of Yankee fans all across the world. And one such of these fans is nine-year-old Yankees diehard Derek Rodriguez. His favorite player is Aaron Judge. So the story's really quite cute. So the fellow who picked up the ball, his name is Michael Lanzolata. He, as a youngster at the age of 12, his grandfather slung him over the wall, held on to him by the ankle so he could pick up a foul ball. And he never forgot that day. He turned back to young Rodriguez and said, we're going to get you ball no matter what. The stars aligned. Judge pounds a home run into deep center. He picks up the ball, gives it to Rodriguez, who sheds his tears, embraces Lanzolata, and the story grows from there. He went back the next day to see the Jays play the Yankees once again, made it early enough for batting practice to see if his hero, Aaron Judge, would sign his baseball. Judge brings him in the dugout, signs the ball, gives him a couple of batting gloves, and that young man will never, ever, ever forget that day that he met his hero. And good old Nancy Lasser for giving him the ball. But just some of these stories, you know, it's kind of part of what makes sports great, but we're all looking for those little snippets uh, of happiness throughout the day to kind of steer us away from some other things that are happening. Also fairly interesting to do, just a bit of arts. 131 years ago today, Carnegie Hall opened for its grand opening. The great Russian composer, Tchaikovsky was there as the guest conductor. Okay, he's located at 881 7th Avenue and West 57th Street. Three concert halls, actually, inside. Okay, let's go. So this one always gets some, I'll call it interesting reaction. Yesterday in the House of Commons, they began the debate about lowering the voting age from 18 to 16. It was a bill introduced by NDP Member of Parliament, Taylor Backrock, nothing to Burt. It's introduced called Bill C-210 to amend the Canadian Elections Act. It was put forward and put on the floor December the 13th of 2021. But prior to that even happening, there was a bunch of young Canadians that took the federal government to court in an effort to strike down the minimum voting age. So these youth representing different parts of the country, aged between 12 and 18, they say that the inability to vote unless you reach the age of 18 is contrary to the Canadian rights, Charter of Rights and Freedoms that states every Canadian has the right to vote. Now, 
The quote is quite interesting from one of these young Canadians. The youth said in their application that being denied the, ro- the right to vote, quote, perpetuates stereotypical and prejudicial attitudes that young people are less capable and less deserving of participating in Canadian democracy through the voting process. The pushback is obvious, right? It's that they're too immature to vote. They don't understand the issues of the day. Consequently, their vote can be too easily manipulated and or encouraged or whatever people want to throw at it. I'm not so sure. I think I'm probably in the minority in thinking that I see a lot of sense associated with this. In four-year political cycles, if I'm 16, 17, by the time I get the chance to vote, a lot of the things that will determine my lot in life, my opportunities in this world, will have been decided by the prior government. There's no reason to believe that in school we can't do more and more to encourage civic engagement, understanding the democratic process, touching on the issues, maybe not so much the political partisanship that kind of bogs us down, but the issues of the day and what they deem to be important, and to be able to go out and evaluate a party or a candidate on their local riding ballot that represents how they think and feel and what they see as their future and the best path forward. Again, I'm pretty sure I'm in the minority here, and this is not to be unnecessarily disparaging, but if we're going to insinuate or intimate that a 16-year-old is too immature to vote, I'm sure that if we're being honest, every single person listening to this program this morning knows someone well over the age of 18 who is completely too immature to vote and doesn't understand the issues and doesn't understand the politics of the day, but they can vote. So that one will bring upon some debate, and please do. I mean, it's not an issue for me and you to debate, but we can certainly have a discussion about the Bill C-210 about amending the Canada Elections Act. Anyway, I think that's a great conversation. And, of course, here we are in the home stretch in the K-12 education system. You know me. I try to put it on the front burner as much as possible because when we look at the priorities of Canadians, including 16-year-olds, whether it be about taxes and jobs and the economy and healthcare and the environment and criminal justice, education always weighed on the list. If education was much more near the top of the list, we'd have a better opportunity to deal with aforementioned issues of concern. So if you'd like to bring forward some of your thoughts on the K-12 system, how prepared you think your child is for the next grade level, and then, of course, the big jumps from three to four, from six to seven, or from nine to 10, and of course, being prepared for post-secondary opportunities if your son or daughter is so inclined. All right. I do think that there's absolutely a bright future in the mining sector, in particular in this province and in this country. Given the fact that the North American Renewable Integration Study was released last year, the largest study of its kind, looking to increase integration and transmission of clean power right across the United States, uh, pardon me, of North America, we are well positioned to be an active player here and how aggressive we are in getting out in front of this to engage potential partners across the country and in the United States, it could be massive. So I do think the mining future is really quite bright, but I wonder what the mining future will look like and the long-term viability of Canada Floorspar, the Floorspar mine out in St. Lawrence. So some encouraging words coming, and I think the mayor, Kevin Pittman, he says he's quite hopeful. He's actually talked with some potential investors, and so has Phil Clark of Grant Thornton. That company is now under the company's creditor arrangement, or the CCA. So they've got a lot of restructuring to do, and it's got to be done by the 10th of July. If nothing comes to pass by then, Canada Floor Spire and the Floor Spire Mine operations may be gone forever. Impact some 280 employees. They're riddled with debt. They had problems at the mine and the mill. So they're over $130 million in debt, including $17 million owed to the provincial government. So we all have a stake in this one, so to speak. 
It's encouraging news. It'd be nice to hear a little bit more about it. Same thing, it'd be nice to know a bit more about the Diamond Group's proposal for massive investment in job creation at the Stephenville Airport. So fingers crossed that the Florida Spire Mine gets some potential bidders who are in the wings will come forward and restructure that company and put all 280 back to work. There's reason for optimism, I guess, when you hear from the mayor. And also, he doesn't see a mass exodus of people and families who would have been employed at Canada Floor Spark. So I guess they're also cautiously optimistic as well. And we do know, now it's been confirmed, there's a glycol leak up at Voises Bay. They say they have it under control. It hasn't impacted anything beyond a medical center, which I'm not really sure what it means, and hasn't impacted any other water areas, but there's been a glycol leak as part of the mining conversation. Okay, so there's been a lot of concern associated with the NL cyber attack, the Meditech system. It's been deemed one of the most serious breaches of its kind in Canadian history. We don't know much about it. We do know that the records that have been compromised go well back into the 90s, maybe as many as a couple hundred thousand people impacted. The province has spent $5 million on credit, credit monitoring for those who have indeed seen their information compromised. We don't know who did it. We don't know if there was a ransom requested. We're not exactly sure of the status of the rebuild. But now we have more information about the monies associated with trying to recover from the cyber attack. At this point, it's around $16 million. The aforementioned $5 million for the credit monitoring, and the vast majority beyond that is for the amount of overtime that IT professionals will be working on the system. A couple of hundred thousand dollars for public relations. Of course, we've understood that number for quite a while. But now that we know, there's going to be an additional $3.8 million allocated or by the next for the next year to further bolster the security systems. But $16 million and counting. And if you want to talk about it, we can do exactly that today. And sticking with the healthcare system, and there's no end to the con concerns or conversations we can have about it, but today's International Day of the Midwife, and they are actively recruiting more and more midwives to be part of the healthcare system because for so-called routine births, a midwife might be all you need to provide maturity, uh, pardon me, maternity services and care. So they're actively recruiting. The services are in high demand, so I don't know how many people would be interested in being a midwife, but we know that so many procedures can indeed be monitored and handled by a midwife, further easing the burden on the system, burden's probably not the right word, easing the numbers of people looking for an OBGYN as opposed to a midwife who would be perfectly capable of handling a quote-unquote normal procedure. My grandmother, Daly, was an extremely active midwife in the St. Mary's Bay area, but province looking for midwives, good thing. All right. So there's been some relief on some fuels today. The price of gas gone up just a little over a cent, but other fuels, there's been a decrease, and everyone knows the impact that's made for on all of us. And it's also the ripple effect in the price of a variety of goods and services that we deal with. And, you know, here's an interesting story. You know, we've heard about people that make the long-distance commute and how they're just being pummeled at the pump. And some relation to maybe, you know, gone are the days where Sunday drive is part of the plan. I mean, who can afford that? I want to say congratulations on a great run to Monty Pettipaw, who operated Monty's Place on the highway in Whitburn for the last 31 years. So he knows that he's had a lot of faithful uh, guests, customers in his place. We, the last time we drove by, myself and my wife, we stopped in and had a meal. And, you know, it was always a really eclectic menu at Monty's, Monty's Place. You can get some fish and chips, Chinese food, 
liver and onions, up and down the line, whatever suits your fancy, Monty had it on the menu. But now with the uh, inability to attract enough staff, he needs about five cooks, only has two. He also makes reference to the price of gas and food. For instance, he would have to increase the prices on his menu by some 25%. In addition, he makes comment about how many of his faithful regulars would have a little drive for who knows how far, but to come and have a meal at Monty's place. And just what I said, who can afford it? Maybe that would reduce the customer base and with an increase of 25%, the inability to get staff. But congratulations that it'll be an emptiness in Mr. Pettipaw's life because I guess when you run something that's a seven-day operation like that, it's just a big part of who you are and what you do day in and day out. Okay, for the purposes of information, Yesterday when the province updated its COVID hub, some good news in many regards. So hospitalizations are down 10 from Mondays 24 to 14. So there's 14 people in the hospital. Five are in critical care, but that's up from three uh, on Monday. There's been three more people have died, COVID-related death, raising the province's total 168. Our condolences to those who have lost a loved one. And we do, you know, we have no earthly idea what the prevalence is out in the community, but those are the updates you know, maybe, just maybe, it feels like Dr. Fitzgerald, Dr. Haggy, and others are right that maybe we've seen the worst of this way. We can all cross our fingers and hope exactly that. But that was offered as information and information only. And on that front, so many people are frustrated to all get out with their MyGov account and the inability to get online and do some of the services that have been put forward and digitized. You know, the reduction of counter service, we know that to be the obvious transition in the way of the world. But you also have to ensure that you can protect my information at Meditech and that my Gov account can allow me to do whatever I need to do with motor vehicle, for instance, but that's out there as well. Okay, I'm almost loath to talk about it because I know it's so contentious and emotional, but if I dodge it, that's not helpful either. What's happening in the United States with the leaked legal opinion from the Supreme Court regarding Roe versus Wade, abortion, is causing obviously a lot of waves in that country, but for better or worse, it's also causing a lot of conversation and consternation in Canada. It's not illegal to get abortion, but it's not codified in law to ensure access to a regulated, healthy, safe abortion in Canada. The Conservative Party of Canada will always be the party looked to for comment. Now, it's fair to also say, when they were the majority government under Stephen Harper, they didn't bring forward any restrictions on abortion. They didn't. So in some places, some people might call this straight-up boogeyman and divisive wedge politics, but... Candace Bergen, the interim leader, said she didn't want any of the MPs speaking out. A couple of them uh, have. She then went on to put out a, a statement on it. And here's part of it. When it comes to the debate in Canada, access to abortion was not restricted under PM Harper, and the CPC will not introduce legislation or reopen the abortion debate. That's important. But would they support any further liberal proposed action to codify it into law? and to protect women's reproductive rights in this country, because there's a difference b between the two. The Liberals say they're going to make that particular move, no real details as to what it means. And then you know some of the extenuating conversation about, you know, responsible behavior sexually and birth control methods, whether it be the man or the woman. I don't have the data on how much sex Canadians have, but you have to imagine the number of, of abortions compared to the numbers of incidents or events, sexually speaking, is minuscule. So there's a lot to talk about here, and it is, of course, going to be very emotional for many, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it because it is a conversation that is going to happen. Whether or not you say, well, it's just an American issue, maybe not.
Maybe not. We should talk about it. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. How are we doing on the phone there, Ben? Let's get it rolling. Let's get a tune going first. Might seem like an odd suggestion coming from me, but I love Duran Duran. <laughs> in 1984, they owned number one in the UK with the reflex. When we come back, let's talk. And now, welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Pat. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Um, I'd like to talk about Airbnbs. And, uh, hello? Yes, hello. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and the, the reason being, I think something needs to be done soon about regulation. I'll just give you an example of something that's happening right now. And they don't know that I'm calling you about this. But... There's a young couple here, or a young family, they have a young child as well, are here for two months because of um, uh, her pregnancy is a, a high risk. So they did have a place at Ronald McDonald House, um, but with a little one, you know what it's like in one room and that kind of thing. They wanted more space and place for him to play. So they looked around for an Airbnb that they could um, rent for the couple months. So they did find one, and supposedly, and I say this very sarcastically, they were given a break on the price for the month. It's a nice apartment, furnished nicely, all that, but it's a basement apartment. They are being charged $6,000 a month for this basement apartment. So, and these are people from Newfoundland. So, and, and Labrador. So why, I, imagine, I just wonder, what are they charging our tourists for an Airbnb when they come? There's no regulations on this, and I think it's about time our provincial government or the federal government start looking at putting something in place for pricing and for standards that Airbnbs are allowed to be. Sure. Well, I, you know, I guess when a, a traditional bed and breakfast would go through Canada Select and there would be a so-called inspection to ensure that what's being advertised is actually what you get when you arrive at the exactly. at, at the B&B. It's not mm -hmm. uh, available with Airbnb, but even if you put some regulatory issues and inspections for insurance purposes like uh, egress and, and what have you, and to ensure that what's being advertised is what the customer will get, that's that's fine, and I think that conversation has been ongoing. But do we really want the government to tell someone what they can price their Airbnb at, or their traditional B&B, or their hotel room? Because it's a competitive market out there. People can indeed price themselves out of the market to their own detriment. So I'm always loath to think that I want government involved in pricing. But I think in this, in something like this, when it's being rented. There's rental um, restrictions, is there not? I'm not sure what that means. If you could just help like me understand. If I'm, renting, if I'm renting an apartment for a year and my monthly rent, is there not some kind of restriction there on how much they can charge me for rent? Not particularly. You have to, like, for instance, if I sign a year or two-year lease, I can indeed negotiate a fixed price with no opportunity for mm -hmm. increase. But uh, there's a piece of legislation that covers that relationship between the tenant and the landlord. So it makes it a little bit different. But, you know, when there's going to be an opportunity for a landlord to increase the rent, you know, I guess it depends on the specific agreement that you have, but landlords can indeed increase the rent, and it happens all the time. We hear these stories on the program all the time. People will even talk about going to the full extent of, well, we need to implement rent control, which would mm -hmm. be directly associated with price. 
even in some jurisdictions where that's been attempted, there's ways for people to wiggle around that too. Yeah. Like for instance, all I do is register as a condominium all of a sudden. And so I can add a condo fee as opposed to a rental fee. Now all of a sudden I'm not subjected to rental control. So there's no perfect system out there. If we're talking about oh. compassion for this particular family from the province here in the city to get treatment for their their ill child, you know, that would be a compassion issue versus a restriction on how much I can charge. But like people say, and I think there's a lot of accuracy to it, especially when there's the free market kind of rules the roost in this country, what my apartment, what my Airbnb, what my house is worth is exactly what someone's willing to pay for it. Now, that's kind of hurt us when we talk about affordable housing and the increase in the price of homes, but it's competitive out there. If someone's, if I have a house that's worth $350,000 and there's four people interested in it, and next thing you know, I, I close a deal for three seventy-five. well, my house is worth three seventy-five. Why? Because someone's willing to give me it. Well, I, I, I just personally think this is just one example that is just horrendous that they're charging that much for a basement apartment. You no, know, I hear you. I do. I I talk about rent with emailers and off air and on air frequently, I'll say. And that's only for two months and they were given a break on the price. So to me that's just <laughs> unbelievable so, but anyways i just wanted to bring it to the attention of somebody out there oh and i'm happy that you no, did this is what airbnbs are doing um not all of them no of course not some of them. well again because it's competitive right when people are willing and wanting to travel and thinking that airbnb is something they'd like to explore they'll go through whether it be they have a specific location that they're interested in mm -hmm. but they will click on several to see if they have the kind of bed and wi-fi and the tv and uh, how big it is how clean it is read the reviews and of course look at the price so airbnb owners also are very cognizant of the fact that i might like to get a thousand bucks a night but thousand bucks a night might mean i have an empty airbnb for the entire season so they price it to where they think they'll see attractive make it attractive for the for the traveler and make some money at it i guess that's the nature of the beast but this compassionate issue i think is a little bit different than for instance as a tourist i'm going thankfully going to get out of dodge this summer and we're staying in an airbnb i just like the amenities associated with it right and mm -hmm. so anyway i understand your point and i think it's a good conversation yeah okay thank you thank you pat Okay, bye. Right, bye, bye. You know, some people don't like to hear that because, you know, rent control and making access accessibility is really a governmental issue when we talk about affordable housing. Now, the federal government has acknowledged with their two little pipelines of affordable housing access to funds and support for developers. They've tried to now amalgamate it, realizing it's not quite working the way that it should. So when we are looking at affordable housing, that can be a partnership or relationship between the developer and the government, that's more a government thing, isn't it? When we talk about if I want to rent out my house for a local, I want to rent out my rental property as an Airbnb for the summer, it's not necessarily the best system ever created, but it's worth what someone's willing to pay. Curiously, and there's a lot going on here, and some people are emailing me back and forth about things like the government getting involved in pricing, the government getting involved in things like making a private sector company buy their materials from one local company, one national company or another, and banning the import of things like, for instance, oil. I can't even imagine the shrieks from 
the rest of the country if that had to be like an NDP or, or a liberal proposal, you know, to control the end production as opposed to what they always lean back on is the free market. Capitalism is broken. Late capitalism is absolutely broken. But it's remarkable to me that the free market guys are now proposing end production controls for private sector companies. I find that to be quite the extraordinary juxtaposition. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Alex in the queue, he wants to talk about Minister Haggie and some of the comments offered in the House of Assembly regarding mental health. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Alex. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Okay, how about you? I'm doing well, having the day off work, so that's good. Rocking out to Duran Duran. <laughs> Love it. Um, I was watching the news there, and it's uh, about the 811 and the uh, change to, like, now you're supposed to phone 811 for mental health crises instead of a mental health hotline or whatever. I think the boys are just missing the point. Like, there's, I just don't know why they can't get along, right? Uh, personally, when I phone 811, I'm, I, I get treated like with immediate response when it comes to mental health in my own personal experience, right? So I've never had um, troubles with that, but, like, I just don't know why they can't, like, get together on it and and try to solve it rather than argue, you know what I mean? Because it's like there's many layers to mental health, whereas, like, if you have a physical incident, like, you break your arm, sure, you know what it is, but, like, mental health, like, there's so many things involved right like so it's so crucial for that person whoever they're like they're trying to help themselves so do they phone the mental health hotline and what's so bad if they get redirected to 811 or if they phone 811 they just they just got to make sure that I agree I agree with Mr. Haggett there's no troubles getting through to 811 and getting an immediate response for mental health they're right up on the ball with that right yeah when they prioritize those calls absolutely because that would have been the concern is that 811 is a very right. busy service but if you indicate that it's a mental health crisis call you get the first person uh, available to deal with and that would have been the case on the mental health crisis line so I was concerned about it because I get when government tries to find efficiencies but upon and further conversation and investigation, mental health organizations, they recommended this. So they wouldn't right. do anything that would harm people that they care about and they work on their behalf. So it, it initially kind of made me feel like, wait now, why is that important? But you know, this might be a fundamental point, but even when you're a child, you know very early in life that if there's an emergency in the house, I just call 911. So as right. opposed to someone having to go online or to a phone book or their phone to find 737-4668-811. So there, there's some logic to it to me. So I'm glad the minister clarified. And when you talk about getting along, he accused uh, Mr. Din, PC member, for fear-mongering. And... You know, sometimes in politics, the opposition plays a critically important role, but some things really aren't that political. So if we're going to join forces to ensure the right thing is done, and it can be proved that we are on the right track, maybe we can temper it down a little bit, because folks are on knife's edge. There's a lot of stress out there. Well, like, personally, I, like, you know, like, I'm years ago, like, five years ago, I was, I wasn't well, right? So, I mean, like, I went through the struggle, and, and today I'm, like, doing, like, fantastically well right so it's it's like some people don't have those supports so it's like it's almost like watching it on the news like it's for the person that's going through that stuff it's not very encouraging right like like you know there's no eye in team <laughs> like get, get together and it's such a touchy subject that it'd be nice to hear it like it's like the message got like uh 
like it got lost because they were sort of arguing. You know what I mean? Like when they shouldn't be really arguing about it, they should be getting together more on it, right? Yeah, you know what? I think that's you know what I mean, right? Of course yeah. I do. Uh, yeah. Which is why I really have a hard time watching Question Period, whether it be in the legislature or the House of Commons, because yeah. it's just it's the theater of the absurd far too often. You know, right? They could they could have replaced. Oh, sorry, Patty. No, no. I was just going to say that. You know, when we talk about things like democratic reform, some of the the work, the the groundwork. The bedrock of some of these issues can be discussed in committee prior to introduction to the House of Assembly. At that point, politicians of all stripes will have a much better idea and knowledge about why the government is doing what they're doing. If there continues to be a need to hold them to account and to criticize full-throatedly in the House of Assembly, please do. But when we have issues that we can make as, as apolitical as possible... Let's do some committee work. Let's get all hands understanding where we are, why we're here, and how we get out of it, if we do indeed need to change course. That might make politics a little bit more palpable. That might make it a little bit more efficient. And it might temper down some of the rhetoric about things that really don't need certain kinds of approaches to debate. And I think things like mental health is one. We can say, yes, why are you building that facility on the floodplain? How is there a wait time of two years for a psychologist or psychiatrist? Why is this? Why is that? A hundred percent. But on some fundamental transitions, maybe some committee work can really help us. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, like weightless. And so that's another, that's, that's a different topic, right? In this, in conjunction with what they're talking about, but like, that's just supply and demand, right? And and when you're talking about money and getting doctors and stuff, I guess, and you know, I don't know too much about that end, but that's what makes sense to me. You need more good news, like the baseball pick. <laughs> Why not, right? You know, right? Like, we, yeah, that, we try to pepper like the show with some good news because I think it helps. Oh, yeah, it's deadly. Go Leafs. Have a good day, Patty. You too, man. Nice to talk to you, Alex. Yeah, nice to talk to you. Okay, bye-bye. Let's get Doc on. Let's go to line number two. Dennis O'Keefe, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Grand. You? Uh, Pretty good, boys. Seems to be a nice day lined up, and we're above the side. That's the main thing. Sure, bye. Yeah, we might be cold, but we're above the side, and that's one of the reasons I want to talk to you this morning. Uh, Just a few comments, Patty, on the uh, consumer price for uh, gas and heating fuels. Mm -hmm. Uh, Firstly, off the bat, I I think the provincial government failed miserably on helping people through what I call a gas and heat crisis. And... To do nothing is unacceptable, and exactly that's what they chose to do. What they could have done, I believe, is uh, there's some room in the tax structure on gasoline to give some relief there. And with heating oil, I think they could have removed the sales tax on heat. should never be there anyhow. But they could have removed it for the critical months, which would have been uh, from November up until April. So they fail to do anything, and in particular now with heating fuel, heating oil, furnace oil, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who had a difficult time making it through the cold weather, and we're not through it yet, and something could have been done there, and it wasn't. Yeah. I understand. So when they say that they're spending... $141 million, I think, is the number that pops to mind. It benefited some people. Of course it did. Was the benefit enormous? No, it wasn't. You know, whether it be someone who qualifies for the seniors' benefit, got a 10% increase in income support, 10%, you know, those, those are, can be helpful. But 
you got to means test some of these things, though, don't you, Dennis? Because sometimes when we have a broad stroke rebate subsidy or break, not everybody who gets it actually needs it. We've got to be attentive to those who need it. Now, what that means for an annual net family income, I don't know what the proper number is, but I know plenty of seniors who would like a break, but they don't need a break. So if we focus it in on the folks who are absolutely desperate and struggling, we're probably doing a better job. Now, that's a bit more cumbersome and arduous and maybe a bit more complicated, but it probably saves money and focusing in the right direction because that's our problem here. We don't have lack of money. We just have problems with distribution. Yeah, but the, the problem there is that uh, people who are affected by this now are, are, are low-income people, no doubt about that. And, and there's a lot of middle-income families who are finding it really, really difficult, you know. Oh, yeah. and when, you, when you put in a means test, uh, it delays getting the cash back into the, into the uh, pockets where it's needed. And at the same time, if you're not really, really careful, you, you cut out a lot of people who are above the line, but who are still in, in great need. So this is why I suggested that uh, a, a tax, just doing away with the tax on heat for four or five months would have gotten money immediately into pockets and it would have helped people in the uh, in the middle income level as well as those in low income and I think that would have been fair ball. It would have been a quick and easy way to help people out. Sure. And uh, I'll get your reaction to this. Uh, look, I wouldn't mind a break. I can guarantee you that. Yeah. But if you do away with one piece of government revenue, given the fact that we still borrow enormous sums of money to deliver an annual budget, if you don't get it there, you get it somewhere else. And if you don't get it there, then all of a sudden we either have to rejig the chairs on the deck, as they say, and or we see an increase in tax or an increase in borrowing. So nothing comes easy or free when you're in the absolutely unfortunate uh, position that we are with deficit and debt. So yeah, but, you know, they had room to move. They had, they have additional revenues this year, some of which are based on oil and gas. So no, they I, I don't. Think, and you gotta, you got to know what to move and, and uh, you know, I mean, come on, they can, they can spend $5 million on the Rothschild report. They can hire uh, an assistant deputy minister to try and recruit more doctors. And, but that's a know, good idea, isn't it? Yeah, the idea is good, but the example that I'm giving to you is that when they need to find money, they will find money. Oh, no disputing it. $5 million for a report that maybe just mimics what the Green Report did. Look, you've heard me. I think some of these consultants' uh, expenses are completely unnecessary. They're political cover and not much more. Now, maybe there's some experts that were required to have a real understanding of evaluation of a public asset. Okay, but should it cost $5 million to go to a, a company that has a track record in privatization? I don't know. I don't think it's a very good idea. But anyway, last word to you, Doc. Well, two other things. Now, really, really briefly. Uh, Gas regulation. Uh, All the Atlantic provinces regulate gas and Quebec regulates gas. I think uh, in the past week or so, like last week, we saw a moderate fluctuation of the, the Brent price per barrel. Very, very moderate. Up a dollar fifty a day, down two dollars another day, up a dollar fifty the next day. Yet the price rose dramatically. Gas and oil prices in in uh, set by the PUB or by the PUB uh, rose dramatically. So something has gone awry and I, I think what needs to happen and I've asked the PUB to do this before and, and they haven't done it, is 
to review the formula that they use to regulate gas and oil prices in Newfoundland Labrador. Go look at the other four Atlantic provinces, look at Quebec, look at other areas where uh, uh, prices are regulated and see what changes they can made, uh, make. See if, if what they're doing is the right way to apply the, the, the rule, let's say, the rule of thumb when it comes to setting prices. The third point I'd like to make is that way back around 15, 20 years ago when electricity prices went up really, really high and quite often, the provincial government saw it fit at the time to appoint a consumer advocate to protect the interests of consumers of electricity. And I think now it's time for the province to look at appointing a consumer advocate, it may be the same individual like Dennis Brown, to protect the interest of gas and oil consumers in Newfoundland, Labrador. That's the only way we're going to find out exactly what is being done and how it's being done and whether or not it's being done correctly. Appreciate the time, Doc. Thanks, Teddy. Have a good uh, weekend coming up. Thanks, same to you. Bye-bye. You. Thanks, bye. Bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Welcome back. Shane's in the queue to talk about Atlantic sports and recreation. Blind sports event. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Shane Cashin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. How are you doing? Great, sir. How about you? I'm doing fine. Good man. So we exchanged a couple of brief notes about the upcoming events. What's happening? What's happening? Well, um, two things. Well, first, I'm going to mention about the Atlantic Sports and Recreation Weekend. Yep. Uh, that's coming up on the May 2-4 weekend. And basically, it's going to be held between the Capitol Hotel, the Summit, and Mount Pearl. And the, um, here we go, Plaza Bowl. So we got different things in the, in the Pergate track and field. So we got different kinds of sports. We've got uh, social activities like CCB Idol. Uh, we have essentially a town show. We have the uh, the final dinner, the the closing banquet and awards, and we also have a uh, dance, of uh, course, with music provided by yours truly. You're the DJ, that's for sure. I've been at a couple of events where you were spinning the records. Uh, how how many people participate in these types of events? And you know, what do you say to someone out there who is blind or has reduced vision, and they're kind of worried about being out there and involved with the sport and what's involved in it and whether or not they'll be able to do it? What do you say to folks? Because I bet you there's a big hurdle to take the first step. I, I, all I have to say is, come on. I mean, look, here's the thing about this. We have, it's a very relaxed environment. And while there is some com- competition, it is friendly competition. And, uh, you know, it's it's a very supportive and inclusive environment. And it's not too late if you want to get in there, you know, and, and help out or you want to get in and maybe partake of some of the activities. It's not too late. What are some of the activities that you participate in, Shane? Well, well, I, I'm glad you asked that because I actually writ, written some of them out. I mean, I got swing, bowling, track and field, washer toss, shot foot, javelin, you know, the classic Olympic type sports. We got, you know, uh, crib, table bowling, darts, uh, amongst other things, you know, like I said, the idol and, and more social side of things. And of course, I'm, I'm proud to say we do have the Canadian Council of the Blinds national president. Mr. Jim Tokos, who's going to be in the province uh, for that week, and he's going to be meeting with uh, members here on, in the province. And certainly I am very honored that he's uh, showing up to the games and making his presence known. I think that's wonderful. Uh, this question comes with all the right intentions. Let's see if I can couch it 
appropriately. <laughs> Some people who have never seen anybody who's uh, had reduced vision and or is blind participate in a sport. I actually played golf with a fellow who said he was 90% blind, and I was blown away just how good he was. But just give us an understanding. Say, for instance, just at the dartboard. How do... How do the blind approach playing darts? Like, what sort of assistance or aids are in place? Is there acoustic setups or someone is whispering in your, in your ear that higher, lower, left to right? How does it work? I would wish I wish I could give you a, a more complete answer. Uh, I would imagine because I haven't seen it myself. I, I it's shame to say that, but I haven't seen, <laughs> I haven't seen it myself. No pun intended. And uh, but we have a gentleman up in Hawks Bay by the name of Dana Mullen. Now he's not going to be part of the games, but he was in the Northern Pen uh, several years back, and because he he did a, a bullseye, because I have no clue about how darts work, other than you got to hit the board and not the wall. But uh, he can probably go in this uh, a little bit more than me, and I'm sure he's listening to him his mom Miranda. So, but they basically line the people up and they say the board is in front of you and they kind of you have a certain standardized pose that you do and then, and you and you, you you flick that shoot that dart or whatever it is that you do with the dart and hopefully it goes to its intended target I think it's brilliant. You know, it, the socialization of these types of sports or games is just so critically important. So let's hope that anyone who's listening this morning that hasn't taken that first step to go to one of these types of events, they might thank their lucky stars that they did and make a few new friends and get off the couch and be active and have a bit of fun, everything that's associated with it, regardless if you can see or not. Anything else, Shane? And give us the folks some information about how they get involved if they're so inclined. Well, if they want to get involved, they can reach out to uh, myself at um, Shane. Uh, yeah, Shane at ccbnational.net because I'm on the national board of directors. Okay, and you, you can reach out, and then I can put you uh, in in the right direction of uh, people that can certainly you know take care of you. But I mean, we're we're always looking for new people, new members, and we're we're expanding as a club. Uh, on a totally different topic, switching bait here, I just want to let you know that I am going to trial next week for my cornea transplant. So, you know, thanks for all the uh, emails from everybody that, that are out there. Just wanted to put that in there as well, a little self-serving promotion. Ah, that's great news, Shane. I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Safe travels and hope it's a huge success. Thank you very much, Patty. And always thank you for your support. You've been nothing but stellar over the past 10, 15 years that we've known each other uh, with, with causes in the community. So... I cannot thank you enough. It's absolutely my pleasure. Stay in touch, Shane. Let us know how it goes. Thank you. Okay, buddy. Thank you. I will. All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break from the newscast. When we come back, we're talking cost of living, and then we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Just very quickly, people talk, well, I talk about litter and garbage. Maybe too much for some, not enough for others. But a heads up, the Outer Ring Road cleanup is this Sunday. The Pitts Memorial is going to be cleaned up on the 29th, just if that's going to impact your travel plans. Okay, where am I? Let's go to line number six and say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Lake Melville. That's Perry Trimper. Good morning, Perry. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. And uh, today I'm in the uh, Confederation Building. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I wanted to follow up on a question I asked of government yesterday and provide a little explanation to you and I guess the folks in the rest of the province about 
uh, a concept that some jurisdictions are dealing with uh, or are using uh, to deal with the high cost of living, and yet they're uh, you know uh, dealing with an oil and gas industry, and particularly it's the concept of windfall profit tax. And the Americans right now have a bill before Congress that essentially is looking at the differential in the price of oil now versus what it was um, over an average of $66 back from 2015 to 2019. They take half of that and they apply that money uh, that then they can turn back to it's, – it's, it's a tax that is applied after profits, uh, not as part of production. So it's, a, it's, it's really not meant to uh, deter uh, the oil and gas companies, but it's actually an opportunity to take some of that revenue that is generating incre- incredible wealth for the executives and the shareholders of the oil and gas companies and putting it back in the hands of the folks dealing with the cost of living. So for the Americans, they're turning it back towards uh, low- and middle-income uh, residents. What, let me try to explain this in a couple of ways. Okay. If we took the Hibernia right now, for example, and say we had this, the same legislation in place here for Newfoundland and Labrador, and we looked at uh, the situation with Hibernia. So if we apply uh, those same values and so on, everything's in U.S. dollars. I have calculated that the current difference would be some $17.15 a barrel right now would come back in terms of revenue that we could use to offset the cost of living. For Hibernia right now, that would translate to about $2.3 million U.S. per day. This is the scale of some of the profits that are being generated right now. You know, uh, governments are struggling with trying to find a way and a strategy to reduce the cost of living. You know, there's a great preoccupation in our legislature, and I'm hearing across the country, reducing carbon tax, uh, reducing provincial taxes. In the meantime, the oil and gas companies are making uh, record profits. So I yeah. put it up to yesterday, and Siobhan Cody uh, said she's going to take a look at it. It's, it's worth taking a look at anything at this moment. Yeah. The For me, because the wind industry in this province would be in its infancy. It hasn't been born yet. Without, you know, outside of the small bit of wind up the southern shore, Ramia, and their uh, their approach to hydrogen store, pardon me, uh, battery storage, and some of the investigations being done there. So there's a little bit, but not very much. What would it look like, do you think, knowing that I'm a private sector company, and I'm still pretty confused about wind opportunities in this province, because if we're talking about self-generation on land, that's one thing, and the impact it'll have on the Muscat Falls bill, whether we're talking about offshore wind and where the market is, or whether we're talking about hydrogen as you know being used to water electrolysis. So there's a lot of moving parts, but if I'm a private sector company trying to evaluate where I can sign a purchase a power purchase agreement, factoring in a return of some windfall tax to the province what do you think that means for business models because access to market is highly unknown at this point like i they say there's people have come forward kicking the tires i haven't heard of one particular company usually i get a little bit of ear to the ground info but i haven't heard anything what do you think it means to a business model for a setup that would be very very new well first of all i'm just talking about applying this legislation right now for oil and gas companies and, and taking that windfall, that, that Oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. I yeah, was stuck I with I, wind. I turned you in a different direction in terms of it. So I'm not talking about wind energy. However, uh, what I get to, to answer partly your question, uh, there's no question that the revenues could be used to offset 
you know, as government chooses uh, for alternative energy producers such as, as wind energy, as you, you suggested. But right now I see the urgency, and as does the United States and other jurisdictions, because this is what got me thinking, Patty. You know, we're, our province is not the only one struggling with the high increasing price of gas uh, added to the cost of living and, you know, in, in our situation, very limited financial resources to, to help those who are most most in need of that support. So I started looking around, and the United States, lo and behold, is bringing forward. Uh, it's a, it's a quite a sweeping bill, and it's, I'm tracking it through Congress right now. The Democrats are bringing it in. It's, it, it could, if it passes, represent many, many billions of dollars that they're proposing to turn uh, that money. So essentially what they're doing is looking at the profits um, that these oil and gas companies are, 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 um, are you know, publishing and, and saying, you know, we can still do this and not cripple those companies, not cripple their capacity, but we can share – uh, share the wealth that they're feeling back to those who are most feeling uh, the downside of this. So it, it's it's a balancing, if you like. Um, Is it also akin to shuffling the uh, the chairs or the Peter Paul scenario? Because the money is is coming, and whether or not we're going to additionally borrow or we create, like as for the Green Report, a sovereign wealth fund. You know, so even when we talk about carbon tax, it's supposed to be reinvested in opportunities for alternative forms of energy. When we talk about gas tax, it's supposed to be spent solely on roads and bridges and culverts and the like. But it's a funny thing that when it makes it into government coffers, there's decisions to be made at how it's spent. So you're saying a legis- piece of legislation that meant it was quite clear. Any of this tax dollar would go directly to whatever we call low income and pick a, pick a number of net family income. So you're saying the legislation will ensure that government doesn't have any decisions to make. The, the decision is made in the legislation. Yeah, we, we need to go in with our eyes wide open and make sure that, you know, in, any kind of intention is clearly uh, articulated in that legislation. For the Americans, they've, they've identified that up to $75,000 uh, individual income, so that's representing middle uh, through to low income uh, folks, would, would benefit from uh, the differential that I described earlier and, and the billions of dollars that mm-hmm. come from, from these main producers. So we could set our own terms and so on conditions around that, but it's it certainly one would be tied to the other, and it may not always be there, but it would represent a way to support those when prices are escalating. And for so much of our society right now, we have this great dependence on oil and gas, and as we see prices uh, going through the roof and profits to executives and shareholders also going through the roof, um, this is an opportunity to spread it around. So uh, it's, again, there have been attempts at things like this in the past, but they were the, the tax, the levy actually came in the production side of it. And uh, it, it was became a deterrent. And you'll find most jurisdictions are very reluctant to entertain that. But it's interesting how the United States, and then I checked yesterday before I went into the House, uh, the United Kingdom is actually starting to consider this too. And uh, President Johnson, uh, uh, Boris Johnson, is... Uh, is concerned a little bit about it because he doesn't want to be uh, singled out and, and, and therefore turn away oil and gas development in his jurisdiction. However, it would be a way if uh, there was an agreement amongst the, most of the nations that are producing oil and gas that we could at least do something to, be, to support our residents uh, when we're going through these uh, amazing inflationary times. Trying to find a way to... Help those who are struggling mightily is always a good idea. So I'm glad the minister was at least receptive to the point where we'll take a look at it because we've got to take a look at an awful lot of potential options out there because status quo isn't working. No one needs me to tell them that. Uh, But I appreciate you bringing this up on the show this morning. Perry, anything else? 
Yeah, Pat, just going to add one more little detail. So I, I'm not a supporter of the Beta Nor project, but I do support the province getting the best deal possible. So I'd also like to put that out there, that as we're developing this agreement with Equinor to go forward with that project, seemingly, um, they could consider the same. And I've done some calculations. It, if if we just go with, say, a very conservative estimate of, say, some 300 million barrels of oil and all the current conditions I've described in this conversation and can provide, that would represent some $172 million a year, a U.S., that could be available to, to support low- and, and middle-income earners in this province. So something to think about. Absolutely. Appreciate the time this morning, Perry. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye bye. That's like Melville MHA, Perry Trimper. Will I sneak Art in, or does he have the patience to wait through the break? Patience to wait through the break? Okay. Uh, Art, thank you for doing that and stay right there. He wants to talk about low income earners, high cost of living. Brian wants to keep the conversation going on blind ice hockey. Fantastic. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one. Art, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, you? Not bad, but. I'm calling about the low-income earners. I called there last year. I was talking to you. I waited for over four months to get social services. And I ended up having to leave my house because I couldn't afford to make the payments. Now I'm living in my cabin, and I'm getting $150 a week. I don't even get enough to pay my light bill. So, and then, why, why, why is that? $150 a week, Patty, could you live on that? No. No. Absolutely I not. I can't. I can't eat and, and pay the light bill too. Well, as I've long said, I think the need to examine the social safety net is long overdue, and I don't know why we're loath to do it. It would come with a variety of different uh, factors or angles. First, we have to know who's on it and why they're on it. And if there are people who look, I think it's an unfortunate generalization where people say, well, there's too many people gaming the system and scamming the system. They're on social assistance, but they're out there working for cash on the barrel head or doing whatever. But we have to know who's getting it. If we can combine some of the different programs and make it easier for folks who are low-income earners and or on social assistance, then we should try and figure it out because the way it's currently structured obviously is not working for so many. It's not working for a lot of us, Patty. I understand. <coughs> no, I don't know. I don't get it. And I'm not, got, I'm not saying nothing bad about nobody else or where you come from or nothing, but the government can spend all this money, $2,800 a person to bring them over from another country to bring them here. And how are they going to look after them if they can't look after what we got there? Well, they're not going to get any income support, so that's one thing. Oh? They don't qualify because when the federal government was fast-tracking paperwork, doing away with the bureaucracy to get them here, the unintended consequence was they wouldn't be able to avail of some of the supports for immigrants or refugees like in normal times. In fact, Greg Roberts and Mary Browns have actually stepped up to the plate to support them financially for the short term upon their arrival. So we're not giving them something while we leave our others behind. I mean, immigration can work, and we can help others who live here and help those who come here at the same time. There's no reason we can't. And the government can let 200 million pounds of fish today get eaten out there. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, well, that could feed a lot of people too, buddy. I just had to hear that out because that that bothered me. Like, I don't know how I'm going to pay my light bill. I feel terrible for folks who are in that uh, life. Now, now, if, I was, if I didn't own this place, they pay my rent and pay my light bill and pay someone else to, to rent money. I don't get that either. Just because I own this, this little house that I don't get, I get $150 a week. But if I lose this house and I have to go out and total, go rent from somebody else, they'll pay $600 a month and pay my light bill and still give me enough to eat. 
so I don't get that. Understood. The system doesn't work the way it was initially intended. I agree. Got that right. I appreciate anyway, the time, Mark. Just let that be known. Thanks for the call. All right, thanks. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going here. Line number three, Brian, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, Brian. How you doing? Not bad. Uh, do you want me to take off the speaker? Or yeah, yes, that would be helpful for me, Brian, and, and the listener. Okay. Anyway, Patty, I just uh, there a little while ago you were talking about uh, the blind CNIB. Well, yeah, well, we spoke with Shane Cashin, who was talking about some events coming up for uh, people who are blind or have reduced vision. Yes, we were. Okay. No, uh, I just wanted to let you know, do you ever hear of uh, blind hockey? I have, but I admit I don't know a whole lot about it, Brian, but I think you probably okay. do. Yeah, well, my uh, grandson has only got 10% vision, and... Uh, there probably about 10 years ago, CNIB sent him out to Vancouver to uh, a blind hockey school, okay? Yep. And uh, my uh, son went out with him, and of course, uh, when my son went out there, he said, uh, Dad, he said, I gotta do something. My son started a blind hockey school in Newfoundland. operates out of uh, Caligaro's rink and uh, it's uh, very interesting if anybody hasn't heard about blind hockey it's certainly something to look at every year in March month they, they go to uh, Toronto actually I was just in Toronto in March and they, they play a blind hockey tournament and my uh, son had raised enough money to take six players up there and uh, you know that wasn't you know that was a lot of money he, he pays for their airfare their hotel room and the only thing he doesn't pay for is our meals that's terrific how does he raise that money oh through selling tickets and uh, and stuff like that. Now the Lions Club and uh, CNIB and the Growlers hockey team. Awesome. Have have been very good to them. Donating donating money. And uh, you know, like it's uh, what can I say? It's very hard. <laughs> try to raise money you should know that right? yes sir I do so know that yeah but uh, I just want to let people know you know t there's a lot of players out there that uh, want to play hockey my, like my grandson he's uh, he's only had 10% vision from birth and he started playing minor hockey say at 6 or 7 or whatever it was but uh he couldn't play because he couldn't see the puck. So this is what brought it all on about CNIB. heard about him and he wanted to play hockey. CNIB said them. Does the, does the puck beep? Pardon me? Does the puck make a beep noise or something? I, and maybe that's a dumb probably, question. The, the, the actual puck is probably, I would say, probably four times the size of a regular Okay, puck. yeah. It's 
made of tin, and it's got ball bearings in it. Oh, I see. Interesting. And, and when they uh, pass the puck, they hear the bearings. Okay? Makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, and uh, when when a player picks up the puck, the, the goalies are completely blind. Okay? Now, if the goalie has uh, a little bit of vision, he's got to wear a blindfold. Right? Okay. So uh, then when if a player goes in over the blue line on a breakaway, he cannot shoot at the net until he passes the puck to one of his uh, other players because it, then the goalie picks up the sound of the puck. Again, these rules make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it sounds about right, doesn't it? Does that sound, does sound reasonable to you? Uh, I think so, yeah, because, I mean, uh, I almost said you can't be flying blind. <sighs> Man. Uh, but if I'm the goaltender and someone comes in over the blue line and they're able, they're able to keep down the rustling of the ball bearings, then I have no chance. So it absolutely makes all the sense oh. in the world to pick up where the puck is by having to pass it. Yeah. That guy can go in a breakaway, but he's not allowed to shoot. I think that's a good idea, isn't it? What do you think? I think it's excellent. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And uh, I also thought about why don't they do that with the uh, what are the novice players? When they go to blue line, they must pass the puck before they shoot. I think about that kind of stuff all the time. Here's the problem, Brian. Novice is a really, really interesting and tricky age for the players and to coach them up. For starters. The disparity between the best players and the not-so-great players at that age is unbelievable. You know, it decreases over time because then you can divvy them up with playing A, B, or C, or AAA, or what have you. But at the novice uh, age, when they all play together, the best players on the ice, they sometimes are so far ahead of everybody else on the ice that we'd actually be asking them to stop. Like, actually stop and wait for someone to catch up because I, I watched a bit of novice over this past weekend, for instance. As far as I'm concerned, that would teach the players that they have to pass the puck. I get that. And we ask them to learn how to pass and receive a pass and all of those types of right. things. But it, it does get tricky when the best little skater can be so far ahead of everyone else on the ice that it might be a it might be an almost impossible thing to teach because then the flow of the game would be completely ridiculous. But I get your point. Learning how to pass the puck around. Well, I just, uh, I just uh, spent a weekend up to Feeling Gardens watching the under nine. I was up there. Yeah. And Jesus, it was exciting. It was fabulous. The vibe in the building was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, well, really enjoyed I, it. Hey, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you watch those little kids out there playing playing their hearts out to win. It's better than going down watching the growlers, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and not to be nitpicky, but of course the the building has now been renamed the D.F. Barnes Arena, just to yeah. acknowledge our sponsor, the great sponsor that D.F. Barnes is. But it, it's it's great spot, isn't it? And the new warm room is so nice, and the building oh, looks yeah. great. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, and two weeks ago, I was up in Paradise watching... Triple uh, A Midget. Yeah. Here, what age bracket? I think it's 11 and 12 or something. Oh, okay. I was out in Paradise watching the uh, under 18 AAA midget tournament. That was pretty good, too. No, I, no, I think it was, I was a little bit lower than that. The kids were probably 11 and 12 years old. Okay. But that was great. I, honest to God, I, I really loved it. And, and 
I played hockey all my life, but <laughs> I tell you, it, it's much better to go watch these kids play than going down the growlers. I like both, but I totally get the excitement of watching minor hockey. It's it's just fun, right? And that's where the game remains fun. Sure, you can be competitive. Sure, you want to win. Sure, you want to score. But fun really drives the motivation, certainly for the most of the coaches and most of the parents. Not all, unfortunately. Last word, Gary, go ahead. Or uh, Brian? Okay. Last word goes to you before I have to go. Okay. My main thing was to let people know that there is blind people out there that love to play hockey and the funds are really hard to come up with and uh, what else do I say like uh, my, my, my son runs a league and it's every Sunday at uh, at uh, Caligro's Arena the old arena I forget the name of it now yeah, I'm familiar with it. It's around... Anybody, anybody that's... Robert French Arena, is it? Yeah, okay. All right, Gary, tell your son that when he's out there scrambling, trying to raise a few bucks to bring those players up along to a tournament, give us a call here on the show, talk about the league, talk about some fundraising opportunities. We're happy to help. Okay, it, it takes a lot of, a lot of effort, boy, to sure. try to bring these players to Toronto. That it does. Brian, appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. All right, Patty. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, when we come back, uh, Gary, I'm glad someone's calling about the debate in the House of Commons about amending the Elections Act to lower the voting age from 18 to 16. Gary wants to talk about that, and then we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's call it line number two. Good morning, Gary. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, twice this week I've been able to get in a chat with you. I heard your preamble this morning, and I, I listened to that. And then what I did afterwards, I called my member of Parliament's office, asked, who's bringing this issue up? And basically it's NDP. And I thought, my Lord, I says, you know, I'm an old-timer now, and I think we better uh, listen to a little voice. I'm going to call it a voice of an old-timer, a little voice of wisdom here. You know, when I was 21, they changed the uh, legal uh, age uh, voting to 18th, and that became the legal age of an adult. So, so you could open up a whole can of worms here, more than what you're hoping for. So, what does that uh, mean? What, what kind of issue of? Here's the issue: You want to vote at 16? Are you now an adult, and now you're going to be if you do something criminally, you're tried in an adult court? I said, you know, you better be careful what you're wishing for here. An amendment to the uh, Canada Elections Act has nothing to do with the age majority, whether you're tried as an adult. Well, that could happen. That could happen. That's, That's not much of an argument. Pardon me? That's not much of an argument, Carrie. No, it is an argument because what happens next? Well, if you're going to be voting, then you should be tried in an adult court now, too. Because no, you're Why? Because you're voting on issues that pertain to all of us. You're voting on legislation of laws and stuff. No, you're not. Yes, you are. Individuals don't vote on legislation. We put our people in Parliament to legislate the laws, so you're part of the process. 
you're part of the process. When you're voting, you're voting on who's representing you to legislate the laws of the land. You're part of it. You're part of the whole process. But unfortunately, Gary, uh, well, just for me anyway, that doesn't make much sense because there's no reference to being an adult to vote. There's nothing that says anything about adulthood. For instance, I can vote at 18, but I can't drink until I'm 19. So there's different ages for different things in this country. You know, same thing when you get your driver's license. Just because you got your driver's license doesn't make you an adult. Neither does being 19 making adult necessarily. So this has nothing to do with the definition of adulthood. It has everything to do with how old we think Canadians need to be before they're allowed to cast a vote. I mean, I can be 16 years old paying tax, working, but I don't get a say. I'm not so sure that makes any sense to me. Well, it, it, it's just, you know, it's just the way I'm looking at it and the way you're looking at it, and they're both valid. They're both valid in my mind. They're, your way of looking at things is valid, and so is mine. Because these, the realization is that, you know, that you have people in this planet that are going to manipulate whatever they can. And that's even in the House of Commons. They're going to manip- manipulate that part of that age bracket to benefit their ideology or whatever they want to put in place in the House of Commons or the uh, here in the province, whatever. And, you know, uh, the way I look at it is that you're 16. Enjoy the next two years until you're 18 to vote. Enjoy that youth because it only happens once in your lifetime. Enjoy it. You don't need the responsibility of being a, a, a going in and, well, what should I vote about? So you're at the your dinner table with your folks. Well, I want you to vote this way. You're living in my household. There's manipulation maybe in a household. Sure, that happens regardless of age. Well, you know, <laughs> the youth don't need that headache as far as I'm concerned. There's some very bright young people in our nation that maybe they feel they have the right, and they're probably responsible enough to have it. But there's many others that don't have a maturity enough to even uh, have that uh, uh voice their own concerns yet or even make a, a what I call a, a sound decision on that? Well, I don't, again, I think the maturity issue is so extraordinarily exaggerated. I talk with adults like, if we're going to have a measure of how mature people are or how much they understand the issue, then that's going to make it a pr- pretty much a, a huge reduction in the number of Canadians who sh- would be eligible to vote. I mean, just think about it. We have people who could be whatever age, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, that will only vote for one party. Why? Because. <laughs> I mean, does that make any yeah. sense? No. Right? It makes no, absolutely no, no sense. Those valid points, Patty. You know. And I talk with adults who uh, have the right to vote, and we talk about their understanding of the issues and their level of maturity. My goodness gracious, they should never be allowed inside a voting booth, but they are because they qualify based on age. And not every 16-year-old. Look, um, that age group, for unfortunately, they talk a lot about public policy, but they don't engage uh, with, with the civics of voting necessarily, not to the extent that they would or should. I mean... For the last, for the first time in history, the last federal election, the largest voting block in the country, millennials. It was always seniors, and now it's millennials. So I don't know why you can't enjoy your, your childhood and talk a little bit more about civics in school and understanding where the country's going, what you think is a good idea, what you think is a bad idea, you know, what your future looks like. And I really do think there's something to be said for it. Like when my boys were that age, they were working. So paying taxes and not getting a say, that doesn't really pass the smell test for yeah, me. No, I, I was working on when I was 15, too, you know, but uh, 
I didn't want that. To me, I didn't want that responsibility of voting until I was actually, you know, I want to vote right away. You know, you're you're a teenager. Oh well, I'm working now. I want to vote. You know, we're so anxious to become an adult during those teen years. You know, you went through it. Every teenager goes through that process. They're so anxious to get older. They want to be that age. They want to do these things. Is it to vote or is it to drink and drive? Or to drink, to be allowed to drink and to get their license? Yeah, you know, there's too many things uh, in that area, in that area of that, between the young and the adult age and all of that. And they haven't all been resolved. Like you said, you know, the uh, drinking age is certain problems to be a certain age or whatever. But uh, I know when it, when they changed it from 21 to 18 for voting, and there was a lot of sound, and like you and I are talking right now, the same thing, these same issues came up. Should we or shouldn't we? We need more people to voice their concerns on it besides you and I. Others have to uh, chime in. Uh, even the young chime in. I want to hear what they have to say about it. But uh, the only thing I'm trying to express is that, you know, be very careful what you ask for. Be very careful because it may turn out worse than what you actually intended to be. You know, we have to be very careful on it. So that's all I want to express, Patty, is, uh, you know, the way I'm looking at it. And I, I respect the way you look at it as well. We need more voices to come on your air, young and old and in between, Express your viewpoints because I'm not right on every issue. That's bad. Oh, I'm absolutely positive. I'm not right on every issue. <laughs> so that's that's all I wanted to share is that you know. But uh, I'm very concerned about uh, it going down to 16. It could just open up a, what I call a can of worms. Whether that's the way I look at it, it could open up a whole can of worms that uh, maybe we don't want. Appreciate this, Gary. Thanks for the call. Okay, Patty. Take, take care. care. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, yeah, and look, and this is not to insult uh, any one particular adult, but let's be honest. If we're going to make the argument about whether or not someone's mature enough, I mean, just look at it. The way that the parties have changed over time, whether, let's just say, the so-called big two on the federal stage, liberals and Tories, if... You just vote for one side or the other just because, even though the parties have changed dramatically, then I think there's wiggle room to talk about, you know, understanding issues, level of maturity, the need to be involved. I mean, people even talk about introducing more and more civics in school to understand how things work. What level of government is responsible for what? How that doesn't come with the potential to be able to cast a vote to actually have your say. I think the debate is fun, and I also think it's important. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back once more. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Ernest Burns. You're on the air. Good morning to you. How are you this morning? Doing okay. How's the pothole man? Oh, my. The pothole man uh, <laughs> is doing good now, but four months after I had the last needle, I never had enough energy not to top my boots, but now I got too much. Good on you. So what's going on? Okay, what I want to talk about this morning, okay, it's uh, from 340 is from uh, Long Point to Lorsport, right? Okay. Okay. Now, uh, some time ago, I went down and I used three cans of spray paint in 28, and uh, I knew they were going to be laid off, uh, the New Rhode Island people, and I had called them, and I said, are you going to uh, fill up in the O's? 
And he said, yes, we were down two days ago, and we used 70 bags of asphalt, but that was after I had them circled. Okay, just so people know what, what we're talking about here. Ernest, for years, has been taken to the roads with his tins of spray paint to uh, encircle what the pothole, where the potholes are in an effort to not only identify them for the driver, but to put a bit of pressure on the department to get them filled up. So that's why I call him the pothole man. You go ahead, Ernest. Okay, so, okay, they did they did use 70 bags to do their molds, and from Newark Island, okay, just after you pass the bridge there in 28, from Newark Island to Holmes's Cove, there hasn't been one pothole filled up, and the pothole man got circles around it to let them know that they, they didn't want me to do this because they already know the holes are there, but I guess when I paint them, would sort of embarrass them. And from Holmes's Cove to Gander Bay, it's unbelievable, the roads are. They actually filled up 13 O's going that way. So I don't know what's, what's going on, why they don't, and so many people traveling on the road now to, now to come home here and all this other going on. And from from uh, Harris's Pony to Gander, they actually put down two potholes. They filled up two potholes with all that bad road going to Gander, right? But the pothole man is about to retire. How long have you been at it, Ernest? Oh, I've been at it seven, eight years. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, one year I used 111 cans. I did from Long Point right to Notre Dame Junction, Stoneville to the Ferry Wharf, and even so much in the Gander. But uh, it comes to a point where I, I just can't afford to buy the paint. But I was getting for 10 and $12 last year. It's actually gone to $22 a can, and the pot old man just can't afford to buy it, right? Yeah, I mean, which is unfortunate because you've done yeoman service for the province to try to put some pressure on, even if it just helps uh, someone driving a vehicle to say, oh, well, there's a pothole, because sometimes you don't know there's a pothole until you're in the pothole. It's, that's right. And another thing i like to bring up this morning, it's sort of a safety uh, thing, I guess. Okay, like clothes dryers. After your clothes dryer is so old, it should be taken apart and clean that because all this lint gets in by, by cleaning up your lint in the door or on the back, whatever, that don't get it all because houses do burn. And if you want to know how to uh, get it apart, anyone that got any knowledge at the ball, it's only uh, two screws in most of them in front. You open the door, you take them two screws out, and then you pull up the, the top of it, and then you got two screws, on one on each side, one on left and right, and you unscrew them, and you pull you pull the front part off, and then you take the belt off, and then you pull the drum out, and then you clean out your sewers there, and you clean it out. And if you don't know how to do it, you Google it, and they will show you exactly what to do and how to replace the belt. Always a good idea. Look, I'm even, maybe I'm just uh, strange, but I'm even afraid to leave the house with the dryer on. You should never do it. Yeah, uh, fair enough. And there's a little sensor on my unit that will turn the dryer off if there's a blockage because of lint. So this time of year, for me, I've been at it for a long time, is I go out and clean the vent on the outside of the house. Take off the the tubing and give the, you know, reach down as far as you can, clean it out. I'm always trying to clean the trap out between the uh, dryer loads, but I, I am indeed 
weary, if not afraid, of leaving the house with the dryer on. There was, I guess, Saturday morning. I had a load of towels in, and the boys were getting a Saturday morning sleep in. I really needed to go do something, so it was two things. Either wake someone up <laughs> so they can watch their, you know, uh, keep an ear out for the dryer, or just wait for them to get up, which, or for the dryer to be done, which is what I did. Yeah, that gives me a little bit of fright. See, uh, there is a whole lot of uh, lint. Actually, I repair dryers, and one particular time I actually taken out two shopping bag folds of lint. It's, it's a wonder that dryer hadn't caught a fire. Well, when my sensor went off, telling me, it said D80. I'm like, what's D80? So I went to the owner's manual, found out it was a lint issue. When I took the vent off the outside of the house, I guarantee I took at least almost a full shopping bag, Sobey's bag, full of lint out. I was shocked just how blocked up it was. Yeah, but if you had taken that that drawer apart and pulled the drum out, then uh, you would be surprised what's inside of it. I'll have you over to do it for me so you can get some more uh, spray paint. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And uh, like uh, the washers... Okay, on the back of the washer, there's two hoses, hot and the cold, right? Yeah. Now, there are times there's a bladder comes on that, and people don't be checking that. Actually, it happened to me this week. But I put the washer out, and it's a bladder there, or a bubble, whatever you mind to call it. And all, sooner or later, he's going to bust. And what's going to happen when you come home? You're going to have a flood. Yep. Because everybody... Don't check that stuff. Well, hopefully you planted the seed of concern in the uh, minds of the listeners so that they may maybe avoid something going wrong. Because between a flood or a potential appliance fire, I mean, for homeowners, they're two worst nightmares. Good to have you on, Ernest. Appreciate the uh, time. One more thing. Quickly. Uh, I actually had a, a car gave me uh, with uh, 50,000 clicks onto it. Someone gave you a car? Yes, she's 2011 with 50,000 clicks on it. Wow, that was a grocery store runner. <laughs> it was uh, very nice of this man, and I want to thank him for, if he's listen, listening, for doing that. Oh, absolutely. You can't get a better gift than a, a car. Two, uh, in 2011, with only 50,000K, that still should be in pretty good shape. She is in excellent shape. Terrific. Thank you, Patty. You have a super day. You too, Ernest. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Yeah, I have a question, Patty. Yep. We have, myself and my wife, have to travel to St. John's here to see a dermatologist. Okay. Now, after 1,500 kilometers, the government will reimburse me so much for my money, eh? Medical transportation program, yeah. Yeah, but now that's classed as a taxable income. So actually, I pay income tax on his money choice. In this country, it's easier to talk about what's not taxable than what is, because there's an awful lot of stuff that's absolutely taxable. Uh, was I 100% sure that that was taxable income? Do, are, do yes, you know sir? that for sure? Because I don't. Uh, it's, it's an honest a, question. It is a taxable income. I went and get my tax done. They, they had it my company pension, which I work from Wabash Mines. But I oh, yes, of course it would be. The government cleaned me out. The yeah. company cleaned me out and every tire, eh? Yeah, of course it would be taxable, because oh. it's not a rebate or a subsidy. It's just money in your pocket that you wouldn't have not had unless you were qualified for whether it be the meal allowance, uh, nightly accommodations allowance, and yes, the kilometer allowance. Right. But, uh, okay, but I spend my own money to get there and back. I understand. Okay? Yep. Okay, thank you. I appreciate the time, Greg. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, and that's right, because if it was, you know, you spent your own money to get where you were going, but the fact that government gave you some back, it's just a support program, so it's obviously going to be taxable income. 
there's not a whole lot of income that's not taxable in this country, right? So lottery winnings, uh, your child tax benefit, um, most things that are that can be deemed gifts, inheritances for the most part, the money you get on the life insurance policy, of course, the tax-free savings account, and the, 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 the GST, HST credits, not taxable, but just about everything else is absolutely exactly that. Let's check in on the Twitter feed. We're via Sim Open Line. I've been told in no uncertain terms that I'm an idiot for even thinking that a discussion around lowering the voting age from 18 to 16 is a realistic thing that we should and could be talking about. It's funny how that makes me an idiot. That person may indeed be that exact immature adult voter that, you know, that we're talking about. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Jessica's in the queue to talk about what looks like a just a transition to her. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Jessica. You're on the air. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Yeah, I'm I'm calling in. Um, I'm actually from Arizona, in in the in the state, <laughs> and I'm over here at, um, in New Finland, uh, and I I'm just calling to talk about just transitioning, and um, so I so Fortis is actually the parent company for a utility c- company in arizona called tucson electric power i actually knew that yeah yeah and um and they they are uh some of their power actually comes from uh the navajo nation which is where i'm coming from i'm i'm dine and uh i live on um black mesa and it's the location for one of the largest uh, strip coal mines in in the Southwest. And um, yeah, and our coal and our water has been used for the past 50 years for a operation called Navajo Generating Station. And Navajo Generating Station is some of, uh, one of the owners is Tucson Electric Power, and um, and they recently shut down in 2019, um, and it sort of left not only uh, some environmental impacts but also some economic impacts to our region, to the tribes, uh, both the Navajo and Hopi tribes, and to uh, coal-impacted communities. And um, so I'm just calling in to uh, to sort of make the case that um, Fortis should engage in just and equitable transition discussions and and make some commitments to our communities who've been essentially left behind. Okay, uh, this is just an, a sincere question. How does the equitable treatment of your tribe 
speak to the issues surrounding a just, a just transition? So is it simply about equity and equality and, and compensation, or is it about the larger discussion surrounding transition, which is a tricky one to have because your thoughts on the matter are certainly going to be different from someone else who doesn't have that same life experience. Different governments think about it a different way. Different individuals think about it a different way. So is it a transition issue on the broad strokes, or is it very specific to the treatment of your peoples? Well, um, I mean, I, I would say that I would say both. I, okay. I, um, Navajo communities, my community, uh, was directly impacted by, uh, the mining and, um, and our water, most, most, a lot of people, uh, I mean, for people here in New Finland, like water, it just seems water water is so abundant here. And in the Southwest, uh, it's not abundant. And our only water source was impacted by the coal mining. Um, Our water, our water, our aquifer, the Navajo, the Navajo aquifer was impacted and overdrafted and the structural integrity um, was damaged. And I mean, that's one of the biggest issues for, for us, for, for my people, because um, Tucson Electric Power and Ortis, they're, they're not gonna come and, you know, replace that water uh, in both quality and quantity. And um, and that that would be a good place to start to uh, start addressing uh, just an equitable transition. And and we've got I've got a list of things that that um, you know Tucson Electric Power the people who run Tucson Electric Power and the people who run Fortis I've got a list of um, asks that would help our our not only the tribal nation but you know the surrounding border towns who were also impacted um like economic economically and you know lost a huge uh chunk of tax revenue uh because you know these operations uh shut down 2 years ago and um yeah and you know all these utility companies are talking about transitioning to cleaner energy and they're they're not addressing you know the legacy of fossil fuels and how um communities like mine are are being left behind And just not in an effort to give you a history lesson or anything about this province, but the abundance of water, it really depends on where you live. Because we have, like, for instance, I'm so fortunate. I can go home, turn on my tap, have some very, very refreshing, cold, clean water. Love it. But there's 
hundred plus communities in this province that actually have to boil their water before they consume it or use it to wash their dishes or to wash themselves or stuff. So I just want to put that out there because inevitably someone's going to say, hey, where I live, the water's brown. So that's just something to add to the conversation because, yes, I'm lucky where I live, but not everyone's the same. Anyway. Yeah, that's that's totally true. Thank you for thank you for pointing that out. Uh, We I. I just got off the airplane and everything was so humid and it was it was drizzling and I was just like, wow, there's just so so much water here. Um, And in the southwest, you know, we only get uh, at best on a good year. Um, before, you know, the major, uh, before, um, I guess, before climate change was really, like, prominent and people could feel it, uh, we would only get maybe uh, eight inches a year. So, you know, it's, it's really dry and... Um, and most most of our Navajo communities also don't have we don't have running water. About thirty thirty percent of the population don't have running water. Uh, I myself have to carry five gallon buckets um, from you know from a water trailer that that we have to haul to um, to watering points. The watering point that I that I have to get to is about. Uh, two hour a two hour drive and um and yeah and I carry buckets five gallon buckets into our house and um on average I would say our family a family of four probably uses about about five gallons a day you know for cooking for washing so yeah water is water is a challenge um, all over the world, and uh, and it would be really great if uh, huge companies who profited off of our water and off of our coal would turn around and 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 try to um, you know try to help us just transition into the future. Understood. Uh, just quickly before we have to go, what brings you to uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, Jessica? Um, I guess Fortis is having their annual meeting this morning. Okay. And, um, and we were out, I was out protesting with some fellow organizations with social, social justice co-op and council of Canadians, um, great allies, great partners. And we just had an awesome time this morning trying to get our message across. Well, I'm glad you did that, and I'm glad you made time for the program this morning, Jessica. Nice to speak with you. Yes, thank you. Nice to speak with you, too. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Here we go. Input from the state of Arizona. And, yeah, you know, sometimes... If you haven't experienced what it sounds like, looks like, feels like in the arid desert of Arizona and the drought conditions that we've suffered uh, right across this country, certainly out west, yield of grain crops, for instance, down 30% last year, solely based on drought. Then you look at places like uh, uh, California, and not only their wildfires, but just how we utilize water. 
just for your own curiosity, whether it be uh, pistachios or almonds or those types of nuts that we enjoy, just have a look at how much water it takes to produce one or one pound of a pistachio or an almond. And you'll wonder whether or not we're on the right track with the utilization of clean drinking water, potable water, as opposed to putting it not on necessarily just golf courses and almond farms and the like, but where it's more required. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. It's a miserable one this morning versus a beautiful one yesterday, but none of them are choice. So we'll take whatever day comes. Just as they say in May, it may rain, it may snow, it may do it all. And uh, I do believe we're seeing a bit of that today. Yeah, so we're anticipating rain here in this neck of the woods too, I believe, today. I think we're supposed to see snow here by Saturday. Okay, it's enough of it. Now give it up. When you hear that from a snowmobile dealer, it's time for it to stop snow. Now, this morning, uh, called the other day, and uh, unfortunately the show was busy and never got on, so they gave me the opportunity to raise a subject that kind of got touched on, but I find it hasn't been, it hasn't gained a lot of momentum. And it's typical of some of the decisions that we've been seeing lately in regards to our fishery, um, to how it's handled from a federal and a provincial perspective, and I guess to some degree how it's not really handled. The group Oceana Canada have proposed uh, a closure of the Capelin fishery. And I don't think there's been a huge amount of science on it, but they indicate that probably the stocks are necessary of some relief, and they may very well be right. But the way that we get this information and the way it happens is kind of like, it's okay, it's just noted as a problem, and we're going to deal with it now like this. Seems to be quite a disconnect between not only the industry and the province, but certainly the province and the feds with the way these things come about, the timeliness, such as the closure of our bait fisheries and the herring and the mackerel being closed. These things leading up to these type of decisions must have been known or must have been discussed that imminently this could happen, but it seems like a carte blanche happens and we get caught wondering, you know, like, where do we go from here in terms of bait and this type of thing. And, of course, if you haven't got herring, you haven't got mackerel, capelin's one of the main things that they eat, juvenile cod eat capelin. So if we're to do this, and it makes sense for us to be doing this, why do they not have this same practice virtually everywhere, I guess oceans-wide, because this is a pelagic resource that moves, they're migratorial fish. And if we don't catch them here and we're operating conservation around our 200-mile limit within our EEZ... But we can only control what we can control, though, right? I mean, we... We, exactly. I guess kind of what I'm getting at. Patty, I'm not saying that we would have any real power, but I think there should be some effort to try and marry the efforts of multinational groups. I mean, we certainly see enough regulation and, and enough... Uh, uh, 
legislation around things like oil and gas and everything else, this is still a world resource that requires more of a world cooperative platform to be able to deal with the problem. We stop fishing here. So what do we do? How does that impact the rebuilding of stocks, as they're saying with the Capelin fishery? So we give it up here. Yeah, what kind of migration routes would Capelin take, you know, that would impact the Greenland fishery, the Iceland fishery, or Scandinavian fisheries? I don't know the answer to that question, but I don't think it's as far afield as some other species. No, it's true. And then the combined issue of pressure on stocks such as our bait fish, which, you know, you're talking the bottom of your, your food chain, why aren't we looking at something sensibly like a seal call? Why isn't that being pushed harder than it has been? And I mean, I know it's a political hot potato, no doubt about it. It always has been. Most basically because of opposition from movie stars and, and propagandist-type moves in the past and saying we were shooting white coats and all this kind of stuff, whatever. But there's too many things in this world, I think, that need to be done. But if we concentrated now on, on what's something that benefits us all, I mean, a fish resource is not something that just benefits Patty Daly and Dave Callahan. It's a worldwide thing. Maybe we should be seen as trying to be, I don't know, the uh, the catalyst behind getting different nations to participate in uh, some type of conservation. But it seems to me that while we're doing it here in Newfoundland, and we always have Cod Moratorium being one example, it don't seem like this gets practiced elsewhere. So how much good can we do? doing our very best with conservation efforts and trying to be in line with what people think would be the responsible thing to do if that doesn't really continue beyond here. If you look today at the marine traffic uh, off of Newfoundland and look at the vessels, if they're outside of the AIF, you won't tell the name, but you can tell it's a fishing vessel. And there's so many of them just outside our 200-mile limit. What are they doing? Well, there's supposed to be additional controls that never really are brought to bear, but you know, cooperation internationally on a variety of things makes all the sense in the world, but of course that's been now co-opted and branded some sort of boogeyman globalism kind of stuff, which um, people try to tell me reduces our sovereignty as opposed to cooperation doesn't make uh, doesn't make for bad policy, you know, whether it be about immigration or Paris Summit or otherwise, because yeah. if it's all hands for themselves, then the chaotic nature of that and the expensive nature of that is well understood, even though people are telling me that globalism is going to make, make us lose any control over our own sovereign laws and policies and the rest of it, which I just really don't think is true. Um, when it comes to fish... There's been some moves on that front, like there was a relationship between this province and Greenland, for instance, regarding salmon. And unfortunately, there wasn't enough oversight there, so the agreements that were put in place, the harvesters in Greenland overfished it. So it's always one thing to put a policy in place, collaborative approach or otherwise, but like everything else in this world, Dave, unless it's enforced and abided by, it's not worth the papers printed on. So it comes with much more... uh, elaborate requirement for enforcement and cooperation because not many countries want people who are scrutineers on their shores doing that type of oversight as opposed to the honor system and sometimes that honor system doesn't work so anyway i'll give you the last word before they ship me off to the newscast well uh, i guess my last word on it basically is this we are a small area small part of global fishing 
but I think we matter as much as anybody else. If we're the only ones that are out there practicing conservation, then i got to tell you the truth. I don't see the benefit. I do see the harm. But I think it's time that our provincial minister of fisheries, our federal minister of fisheries, probably started making the liaisons with these different countries to try and make something get put in place. I don't even know if it's possible in today's world, Patty, but idealistically, it requires more than us just playing the conservator than more so thinking that's going to do anything if everybody else doesn't play their part as well. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty broad one to tackle in the next 30 seconds before the newscast, but I get that approach, but again, if like this is the same argument made all the time. Why would we do anything to jeopardize our economy when Russia, China, India, da 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 We can only do what we can do, right? There's more countries on the face of the earth that are willing to engage in, for instance, level off the playing field for corporate taxation. Try to make it not so mobile for a, cor- a company to say, oh, well, shag Canada, shag States, shag Germany, shag the UK, because I can do it cheaper elsewhere. That's where cooperation can actually work. Same thing with immigration policy that people think is something which is actually not. If we didn't have international cooperation on things like immigration, the chaos would reign supreme. It would be no good for anybody, not the refugee, not the immigrant, not the country they're leaving, not the country they're coming to. So some things actually just make sense. As much as there's a lot of people who are scaring a lot of folks based on things that are based in very flimsy, if not fantasy. So I get it. You know, people, I've got folks (coughs) who are at me all the time about 2030 and the World Economic Forum and all of these things. And I think we're... We're going down some roads where it's hard to have realistic conversations when, you know, the opinion is based on whatever, and it's so staunch that we can't just boil things down. When I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I've admitted being wrong in this program, I don't know, unfortunately, far too many times this week for my liking. But when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And so uh, conversations are important as opposed to declarations. You know what I'd like to see, Patty? Uh, I'd actually like to see a politician every now and again say that they were wrong or that they didn't have the right answer. Well, there's a political upside to it. It doesn't make you a bad person to make a mistake or to get something 100%. wrong. Uh, Dave, i got to get to the news. Appreciate the time. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, buddy. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. All right, let's take a break for that newscast. When we come back, Calvin's there to talk about what's happening up on the Bonavista Peninsula. Lindsay wants to talk about what was in the federal budget. Whatever that is, we'll find out in TJ Mental Health. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number three. T.J. Smith, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Well, I'm not too bad. I'm just trying to work away. I'm a break here. A um, couple things before I get in talking about mental health. I know you, I was, I'm a hockey guy, so I was glad to see the Growlers pulled off in Game 7 there. Absolutely. Uh, it's always fun to play Game 7, um, even more fun when you win it. Um, and I know you're cheering for uh, Avalanche there, and I was disappointed to see Alex Newhook didn't make the lineup there the first game, but uh, they're a deep team, and I think he's going to get in there eventually. Uh, if you want to make a run of anything in the playoffs, you're going to have to use everybody that's on your roster. And uh, I think when he gets in, he's going to make a difference. Yeah, I'm not sure what went down there. I should uh, ask his dad. I was hesitant to ask him because, you know, I'm sure he was also disappointed, but uh, I'll find out. I didn't see if he was just a healthy scratch or there might be something else going on. I'm not sure. Yeah, I checked it out. I didn't see him on an injury report or nothing. Me neither. Again, they're you know the Avalanche are deep as they come, and uh, he's going to get in there again. He's too good of a player not to play, right? So, I agree. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, Patty, uh, it's Mental Health Week, and I just wanted to call in and uh, just 
share a few thoughts I had. Uh, personally, I've dealt with my own mental health issues. I won't say mental health issues. I dealt with mental illnesses. And the uh, first thing I want to say is there is a difference between mental illnesses and mental health. Uh, what I tell people, everybody has mental health. Everybody in the world. Uh, not all. Not everybody has mental illnesses. Like uh, one in five is the current stat here in Canada. So, uh, you know, it's Mental Health Week, and I think it's important for everybody to understand that that we all have mental health, just like we have physical health, and it's important to take care of it. A um, couple areas that uh, I, I done some emergency substitute and teaching, and uh, I worked with a lot of youth. And uh, one area that does seem to lack in mental health resources and training and education is our younger people, our kids, 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And, uh, you know, personally, I would like to see more things done, <clears throat> excuse me, in the, could be in the school system, could be in local groups, uh, helping these young people. Uh, it's been a while since I've been 13, 14, but I can't imagine some of the things that they have to struggle with on their own. Sure. But what do you mean by that? Because, you know, even if it's just the social media pressures that it brought to bear, and that's really changed how teens deal with the world around them. So are you talking about uh, talking more about uh, coping mechanisms or reducing the number or increasing, pardon me, the number of guidance counselors per student? Or is it access to more psychologists in school? What do you mean by uh, dealing more with teens where they are? You're spot on with all of the above. Uh, more resources. Uh, you know, it's 13. When you're a 13, 14 year old, it sometimes might be difficult to reach out to your parents. For example, uh, ask mom and dad or who, who your guardians. What am I? I'm dealing with these thoughts. I'm not sure what's going on. Who do I refer to? Who do I talk to? Uh, I know schools are doing a better job than when I went to school back in you know the early 2000s. Uh, back then, the guidance counselors more helped you know, with your career path, your education path. Now I think it's more towards helping the students with things, you know, like your mental health and things of that nature. Um, personally, I would like to see it more in schools, and uh, that's where it's, that's where the kids are going to learn things. It's, it's, I think it'd be important to start learning things there uh, with regards to mental health, whether it's coping strategies, understanding the different mental illnesses that are out there. Uh, you know, it's it's. Oh, big topic uh, that we don't talk about enough, especially with our younger younger people. I think when you hit 12, 13, uh, it's a good time to start talking, having that discussion with them. I don't know what the appropriate age is, but I do think the numbers, as reported, of young children with uh, anxiety and depression is different than when I was a kid. Or maybe we just didn't talk about it enough and wasn't diagnosed enough. I mean, just think about autism, for instance. They're saying the prevalence has grown, but um, some of that's probably about diagnosis versus the prevalence of uh, autistic children. You know, they were just told, we were told they're slow or they were off or whatever the case may be, as opposed to a firm understanding of what's going on. I would imagine the same thing with mental wellness and mental illness uh, amongst children. So I don't dispute. You know, talk about it openly and honestly, just like everything else in this world. If you get them young and talk in age-appropriate levels, then they will have a better understanding of who their classmates are, what's going on in their world, not to be nosy or invasive, but to be aware. Same thing if you even talk about, like, what? Uh, Volunteerism. You get them when they're young, they'll do it for life. You get them in, when they're young to understand what's happening and to be honest and talk about things like this with their family and their friends and their teachers and their guidance counselors, we'll probably be better off for it. 
Oh, I totally agree. Uh, you know, it's a tough, you know, I, I'm with you 100%. Get them when they're young. And, like, if you teach them these skills when they're young, just like you're teaching them two plus two is four, you know, this is a coping mechanism. If you're not feeling great or you're stressed out about something, here's something you can do. And hopefully, you know, make yourself feel a little bit better about it. Uh, that's with the youth. Another thing uh, I would like to put out there for people to talk about, especially people that, <clears throat> excuse me, that are in management, and organizations is a uh, we, we a lot of the uh, corporations organizations re- require first aid training. I think it's time now we start looking at mental health first aid training for our employee our employers and so uh, you know it helps employees. Uh, you know I I had to do first aid training for my position and I learned how to put a splint on somebody. The, where I work, you're probably not going to put a splint on anybody in any time in the near future. But you know what? I might deal with someone that's having, you know, suicidal thoughts or they're going through something that they're not quite sure what it is. And I think if our managers and our leaders are more equipped with this mental health first aid training, it would go a long way with helping our employees uh, and might save a few dollars. I mean, people miss so much work due to mental health issues. Uh, if you can, you know, provide our managers and leaders with the sports and understanding and training, I think it would make a big difference in the workforce. Uh, there's wellness programs in my company, and I think most, quote-unquote, good companies are doing the exact same thing because when we're talking about quality of life and work-life balance and all those types of things, that plays an active role that discussion so the companies are better off their employees are better off they feel like they the the uh, employer cares about them as opposed to just needs them and uses them so yeah i think that's all spot on tj absolutely right so yeah patty i'm a big time uh, a long time listener first time caller and a big time fan so i uh, thank you very much for taking my call and uh, hopefully you know someone takes we only had a few minutes chat but hopefully someone takes something out of this i hope they do too tj so thanks a lot for tuning into the show and i really appreciate your time this morning Thank you very much. Have a good one. You too, man. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number two. Calvin, you're on the air. Uh, Yes, Patty. I've been two or three days trying to get courage enough for to give you a call. I called Holton Line once before in my life, and that was back in uh, Bill Rolls Day. Very good. Well, welcome back to the show. Yeah. I want to tell you about the Bonavista Peninsula Hospital there mostly. Uh, I've been involved in a nice busier lately with trips to and from. But anyway, I'm from, I got about three minutes or so, and I can wrap up, and you can comment after. Go right ahead. Uh, I'm from Trinity Bay North myself, and the first thing i got to do is give the exceptional super nurses a bouquet that's working at the hospital. And then... From what I see, there's one doctor there most of the time right now, and she's not she's not working a family a family doctor schedule because she actually told me herself she don't know how long that she'll be staying. And uh, there's one or two nurse practitioners at the hospital, but after hours, there's only it's only covered by a doctor from out of town that's usually there uh, from time to time. But uh, down the road, I'm just wondering what will happen when we can't get an emergency doctor to cover hours outside the normal hours. We're desperate for a couple of full-time doctors. I'll tell you a little short sketch there. Now, two weeks ago, I took my wife there at Bounce Peninsula to emerge. It was in the evening, and it was a very serious breathing problem. And I was lucky enough that at the same time I went there, there was a doctor there. And the doctor that was there, to make a long story short, he uh, stabilized her well enough to get her to Clarenville Emerge. 
where she spent four or five, four days before she got out. But while she, the first 18 hours she was in there, she was on life support. Anyway, she finally came around. And now we're back and forth to Bonadista Hospital from Catalina three times a day, which comes up to 100 kilometers a day. We drive every day. And we got to do that for 126 trips. But anyway, that's beside the point, too. So uh, my main concern about it all was what what is going to happen in the future when that emergency doctor that works after hours for this kind of thing, because nurses are only limited to do so much, what's going to happen after when he's not there? And I'm not hearing, because my wife just definitely wouldn't have made it if, if they weren't there at the wet time. And I, I'm, I'm not hearing nothing from our own mayor here in Trinity Bay North. And I think a couple of weeks ago that I may have heard comments from the Bonavista mayor, but I'm not sure on that. And our member, Craig Parity, I haven't heard tell of him in ages. The only time I've ever heard tell of him is when he's driving around, sizing up this or taking pictures for the, on Facebook or something. And I think, and I can't be sure, but I think Chairman Rogers is our federal member, but I, I could be wrong on that name, but I haven't heard tell of any of them people since the last election. Now, what's happening around here, a lot of people around this area are getting very, very stressed out, in, including myself, because I've been back and forth at the hospital rack with my wife now for so long. But I think it's time for so many people got to start speaking up, because I hears a nice bit from uh, Fogo Island, uh, Central, Gander, Grand Falls, and them places, but I'm not hearing any people speaking up like they should for our area down here and that about sums up what I've been thinking about for two or three days and I'm so glad that I've off my chest Well I'm glad you got it off your chest here on the show Calvin uh, short summary answer to your big question, I don't know I don't think anybody does. It's one thing to hear from politicians, whether it be opposition members and or federal members of parliament. I think we're going to learn a little bit more about what the world, pardon me, the province will look like in healthcare middle of this month. Because when Health Accord brings forward their blueprint, government will have no choice but to speak to very specific areas because there's going to be references to emergency services in the hours offered, Bjorn Peninsula, Bonavista Peninsula, Great Northern Peninsula, what have you. There's going to be real more, there's going to be a lot more detail. So so we'll be able to zero in on it and ask, you know, whether it be the minister, the premier or others about exactly what people can anticipate. Because the big, broad nature of some of the healthcare conversation now leaves a lot of unknowns out there. So I really do think we're going to know a lot more about what the future holds come the middle of this month. I'm not exactly what sure they're going, what day Health Accord is going to release that blueprint, but it will give us the opportunity to say, very specifically, emergency services, Trinity North, right? Because here's the blueprint. Will this be adopted? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? So these questions I'm looking forward to a asking because right now there's still so many unknowns that we're talking about the generalities as opposed to very specific issues. You know, whether you'll be able to see an OBGYN uh, in the Great Northern Peninsula, whether or not there's going to be emergency services in Marystown and or Trinity North or close by Burgio or what happens to a patient in McCallum. So those are things we're going to have a better understanding of very soon and I'm happy to ask the questions on your behalf yeah well I'll appreciate that and uh, just one little thing there now uh, like when I'm when I spend so much time there recently I can see from the long wait in the dressing rooms and the waiting rooms there of what 
the doctor himself must be going through too. Oh yeah. You just can't keep up with it. No way. Impossible. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I I really want to. I told the nurses that if I could do it all, I was going to call mine and just give a little statement just in, you know, on their behalf. I really appreciate the time, Calvin. Uh, thank you for making yourself a second-time caller. Yeah, I hope it'll be a third one down the road. I look forward to it. Okay, thank, thank you. you, sir. All righty, bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's see. Line number four, Lindsay, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Can you, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Go right ahead. Okay, yeah, I'd like to talk about the last federal budget. Okay, there's something into it I'd like to start with. Like, there's something into it for most senior citizens or some kind of increase we're supposed to get or something like that. Okay. But I understand we're not going to get it now. There's something that I don't really know what it was, but there's something like that anyway. Well, it's hard for me to comment on because I'm not 100% sure what you're talking about. They did indeed put the money forward for the increase in old age security. That is remains in the budget. But I'm not exactly sure what you might be referring to. I don't know. I, don't, I, I, I didn't get all of it. You know, that's just the last part of it or something like that. Uh, they said something about they were not going to get it anyway. So I, I don't really know what it was about, to tell the truth, that first part. You know, that, that one I'm talking about now. But there's something that are like that. I don't know what. Well, that, that's the big one that people have been looking at, and that absolutely is going to be there. And, of course, you have to be 75 years or older yeah. for that particular 10% increase. Um, so without a specific understanding of what program you're talking about, I'm not really sure what to say. They did a few things on seniors. There's going to be a panel to look at uh, aging at home benefit, which is going to be a big part of the conversation in this province for sure because it's not all just about building long-term care beds. It's also about programs to age at home. There was some investment in uh, what they call the New Horizons for Seniors program. That is not a big load of money. I believe it was $20 million over the next two years. So other than that, I'm not really sure what you you might be referring to. I didn't really catch it either, you know, but anyway, that's the way I understood it. Now, maybe it was meant to be something else. I don't know because... I only got a little bit of it. Well, if anyone uh, has an inkling as to what you're referring to, they can send me a note or give us a call, and I'll be happy to talk about it on the show, Lindsay. Yeah, okay. And uh, the other thing I want to talk about is the uh, dental care for children under 12 years of age. Yeah. Like, I understand that's not going to kick in until 2023. That's January 2023. Yeah, then to be expanded for uh, some seniors too, yes. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, uh, like... Children under 12 now, like between you're at the age of 11 and 12, that's when you lose your baby teeth and your adult teeth grow in. Before that. Well, maybe before that, but, you know, around that age anyway. And, uh, like, like, okay, now then you get your baby teeth when you're six months to a year old. Now, how many children that's three or four years old or five or six years old are going to have to go see a dentist, you know? Like, like there's going to be some in the country. I grant it, there's going to be some children, yes, and maybe a whole lot because it goes, it goes from coast to coast to coast. So, you know, there's some children, yes, going to have to see a dentist under the age of uh, uh, 12, between, yeah. say, 5 and 6 or 7 or 8, you know. Okay. But uh, they're fewer than what the children are going to have their normal teeth, say, you know. Uh, I think you, your baby teeth go well before that. But anyway, I'm going to sneak down another call, Lindsay. I'm going to sneak on one more call unless you have anything else. No, that's about it. You know, like, uh, I'm going to c- continue on, like, for when it kick in for teenagers. 
in 2024. And I believe there's an election in 2024, so in 2025 they had to have an election. Anyway, it, it won't kick in very long for them. So, you know, I, I don't see the federal government spending a whole lot of money on that program. Tell the truth. I guess we'll all find out at the same time, but I appreciate the call. Okay, then. Thanks, Lindsay. All the best. Great. Bye. Thank uh, you. Uh, bye-bye. Last word goes to line number one. Good morning, Tina Davies. You're on the air. Good morning, Tally. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Um, I, ju- I didn't catch the whole show, but I caught a f- the last few callers, and I just wanted to, uh, the fellow that was talking about uh, getting getting um, help for the students in the schools, I wanted to uh, just touch on that. I did a Safe Talk workshop, which is a three-and-a-half-hour workshop that teaches people how to recognize people who are having thoughts of suicide and to ask them out directly if they were having these thoughts and to get them some help uh, out at the Avondale High School, uh, Ron Kelly High in Avondale, just on Tuesday. And the feedback was tremendously positive. Uh, and, And we've been trying for years to get into schools and I think um, I think it should be we should be in there like from grade 7 on easily, easily grade 7 but people believe that they tend to believe the myth that uh, when people when you talk about suicide that it causes suicide that's a huge myth um, and I think that the students were, were grateful and and I could tell from the feedback forms that I received after the workshop that they were very grateful and appreciated the fact that um, that they could ask somebody, one of their peers or whoever, if they were actually having thoughts of suicide. This is a big thing. And even if you ask somebody and they're not having thoughts of suicide, what's the harm done? None. Uh, if that person's not thinking about suicide, they can they will know that if they ever are, that person that just asked them is open to speaking about suicide. And, and that's the thing, right, is speaking about speaking about it openly. I, uh, I, I can't stress it enough. And I uh, so appreciate being able to get into the schools. We're, we're, doing, we're doing a lot of work. Um, I don't know. I, you spoke about the blueprints that Health Accords bring out. Well, I've been with the um, – remember when the all-party committee passed that bill for to go around uh, the province to find out what everybody wanted? Well, ever since then, that's about six years ago, um, we've been working behind the scenes and we've been building things t- – for the future, for this province, and Tina, it will be included in. Yes. Just let me happen because there's so much I want to talk to you about. And we actually I had know. Tanya Joy on the show yesterday. We talked about you a little bit as well. Um, oh. Do you uh, at all have any time for us tomorrow so that we can have a legit conversation? First, the fact we're already clear 12 o'clock now, and I hate to cut yes. this short because I really want to talk to you about this. Yes, yes, I'd love to do that. Okay, Absolutely. so let's do that. Okay, let's do it. Thanks, Patty. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay, thanks, Tina. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Ben Murphy, nice job. Ben, thank you very much. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.